In my work as a strategic advisor to dozens of nonprofit CEOs, time management comes up quite a bit, at least when we have the time. I can't get anything done, they say. I just go from meeting to meeting. I talk with board chairs about their quarterly meetings, deflated by the lack of engagement. You know, if people weren't checking their phones, they, they might as well have been. Then there was a client who was promoted. She was excited. So I was excited for her. She was now part of the senior leadership team. But she called me for help. I'm so delighted to be more senior in the organization. Don't get me wrong. But now I sit in what the CEO calls our weekly leadership team meeting. I'm certainly unconvinced that we're a team, but I think we just meet because CEOs are supposed to meet with their direct reports. Can you imagine a world in which the phrase excellent board meeting was not an oxymoron? Or a world in which people didn't complain about being left out of a meeting, feeling diminished and devalued? My guest today can imagine such a world because she creates these worlds for her clients. She is a professional facilitator, and here's how she describes that role. My role is to put the right people in a room and help them to collectively think, dream, argue, heal, envision, trust, and connect for a larger purpose. I strive to help people experience a sense of belonging. Sounds kind of magical, doesn't it? But it's not. It's not magic at all. So get ready to transform how you think about meetings and gatherings, and let me offer you a spoiler alert. The lessons apply as easily to a dinner party or a bar mitzvah as they do to a staff meeting. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab gets it. She is here to help. Priya Parker is a facilitator and a strategic advisor. She's the founder of Thrive Labs, where she helps activists, elected officials, corporate executives, educators, and philanthropists create transformative gatherings. She works with teams and leaders across technology, business, the arts, fashion, and politics to clarify their vision for the future and build meaningful, purpose-driven communities. She's got a really long list of impressive clients, and they include the Museum of Modern Art, the World Economic Forum, and meetup.com. She's trained in the field of conflict resolution, and Parker has worked on race relations on American college campuses and on peace processes in the Arab world, Southern Africa, and India. She's a founding member of the Sustained Dialogue Campus Network and has been appointed to a number of different kinds of global councils that are looking at new models of leadership. She is also the author of The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters. She's passionate about helping people create gatherings in their work and their life that are transformative and meeting, meaningful for the people in them. Her TEDx talk on purpose, which I happened to see and enjoy and took tons of notes, has been viewed more than a million times. Priya, for those who read my blog, I gave your book the distinction of being the best book I read in 2018. I, I also liked A Gentleman in Moscow and Educated by Tara Westover quite a bit. But maybe I should modify uh, my thoughts here. I think that your book was the most transformative book I read in 2018. So I'm delighted to have the opportunity to chat about it with you and to offer listeners some of the pearls of your wisdom. So thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. So it, it won't surprise listeners that purpose is central to Priya's gathering magic. 
So it sort of seems um, fitting to start with this question, and as someone who has written a book, I think about this a lot. Um, I think about the why. Why did you write a book? What was the purpose for the book? What compelled you? What ignited you? What said, I got to write this book? What was that for you? (laughs) Going to a lot of gatherings and leaving disappointed. Um, (laughs) I wrote this book out of sort of pain, frustration, and anger. (laughs) And I think as, and, and everything from leaving a dinner party where there's wonderful people in the room and and frankly, beautiful food and, you know, great wine and feeling kind of empty as I, you know, left, Mm -hmm. um, walked out the door, having not actually connected meaningfully with people, um, or going to a conference and, and sitting and, uh, listening to, you know, speakers go on and on and on and looking around at the audience and thinking, my goodness, what we could actually do at this time. Right. Um, and I began to think about why so many of our gatherings kind of fall flat. And I think in part, it's because we've outsourced our kind of searches and our wisdom to experts on the things or the stuff of gathering. Um, so if you look at even things like dinner parties, it, it, the proxy for dinner parties are recipe books. <laughs> um, or, you know, florists. And it's not that chefs don't have expertise, but they're, we have, we have over indexed on the things of gathering and assume that the chemistry and the magic will take care of itself. And I can tell you as a group conflict resolution facilitator, that is not so. Actually, the dinner party thing really strikes me. Um, uh, my listeners may not know this, but my wife ran the Food Network for about eight years, and um, it was a sh- it was a before she arrived. It was a channel about cooking. And uh, when she first started, we were chatting, of course, over dinner. And she said, "You know that the best meal you've ever had had really nothing to do with the food." And that food is a centerpiece for something else. And uh, it's not about what you serve. And so I, I, I think that she would um, agree with you wholeheartedly about um, the, the, on, the, on the dinner party front. She totally, she totally dig what you're talking about here. I love that. And I, and I think many people who, uh, you know, think a lot about food and gathering will <laughs> say that, that food is the convening mechanism, right. but it's not the purpose. And I think as we have uh, kind of specialized and um, as chefs have become celebrities, which is a you know a relatively new phenomenon, um, we have placed even more meaning in uh, what I would call the proxy of gatherings. And when we, when we basically think about improving our, our dinner parties to continue with this example, um, by spending more time on the crudités rather than spending more time thinking about the questions we might ask or the name we might give to a dinner party to prime people in a different way. Um, how they would show up. Uh, we are focusing on the wrong things. And I, you know, I love food as much as the next person. Um, I, but I think part of the, part of the challenge of, um, placing so much focus on the food or frankly on the PowerPoint or, um, you know, on the, you know, on the kind of stuff of the gatherings, whatever the context that you're, you're working in, um, is that we, we are putting too much hope on getting meaning from the wrong places. From the what rather than the why? 
from the things rather than the people. Yeah, good, 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 good. Uh, I'm I'm laughing thinking about nonprofit leaders um, listening to this going, when when do these people think I have time to throw dinner parties? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I mean, I think the dinner party is kind of the hoity-toity version of, or hoity-toity version of of a meal with your board members. Completely. of the, you know, of, of even like din- grabbing dinner together after a, an evening after the conference. Completely. Um, it doesn't have to be, it's, it's anytime you're getting together with three people or more, how can you increase the likelihood that the time you spend together is meaningful, is, is, you know, fascinating, is, gives you something to think about or a different way of seeing, or gives you a memory that reminds you that actually it doesn't have to be this way. Yep. So at the top of the podcast, I quoted you that you said, I strive to help people experience a sense of belonging. That was a mm. new framing for me as it relates to gathering specifically in a, in a sort of a professional setting, a staff meeting or a board retreat. And I, and I wondered if you could, I mean, I think I get it as more in a personal setting, but maybe in a, in this sort of professional setting, I don't think people really think about meetings or board meetings in the, in the framing as it relates to sort of this notion of belonging. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Gatherings for me are interesting in part because they are specific moments in time with a beginning, middle and end that are about group dynamics. And in every time, again, I, I define a gathering as anytime three or more people come together for a purpose. Um, anytime they do, there's an element of the content that you're focusing on. But the what actually happens with people in the room deeply, deeply matters. And uh, there's a German thinker named Thomas Hubel who talks about these twin forces in all group life. And he says, there's a desire to belong and there's also a desire to become. Um, Howard Thurman, uh, uh, sorry, Paul Tillich, um, a Christian theologian from the 50s, talks about these two twin forces of, of power and love in groups. It's a sort of these two similar forces as belonging and becoming. And I want to spend a, time, a second on it because related to belonging, whenever we come into a group, there's basically the desire to kind of want to fit in or to be part of something greater than ourselves. But there's also a desire to be seen for myself, right? So gathering isn't only about belonging and kind of the larger we. It's also an ability to, to have a moment where you're also seen as an individual. Yep. And um, part of the kind of the dance of all group life, including meetings, including frankly weddings, including you know bar mitzvahs, um, is is understanding that in every situation there's a need and a desire to both belong and people want to feel part of something, but also to to use Hubel's language to become. Um, and this this the I think that the uh, the aware uh, leader understands that that there is need for both in every meeting and to design for that. I love that. So I get that you have to be really clear about why you're meeting. So, so let's say, um, let's say I'm having a monthly all staff meeting to keep people in the loop, or I meet with my direct reports every week so we can share information with each other or my favorite, you know, we're having an offsite to build a sense of team. I just, 
I have just described how those people would describe the purpose of those meetings. And I don't think that that's what you think purpose looks like, that that's not enough, that it's not enough to meet to share information, that it's not enough to meet to keep people in the loop or to just simply build a team, that uh, that those things are seen as meanings, meanings for gatherings, but they don't actually dive deep enough. Do I, do I have that right, Priya? I think, I think every gathering has a potential to have a purpose. And I think one of the dangers of all gatherings is we tend to substitute category for purpose. And what I mean by that is whether it's a staff retreat or the, you know, weekly all hands or the Monday morning meeting, um, when we, when we think that there is a container that we should have, we fill it. And what I'm arguing for is don't start with the container that you feel like you have to have a weekly all hands. Um, start actually with a different question, which is not just what is the purpose of this weekly meeting, but what is a need for this team that by coming together, we might have the possibility to address. And if you say that, one, that I'm going to Priya, I'm going to make you say that again. I'm going to make you say that sentence again because I think people really need to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> so ask, what is a need in this group that by meeting together, you might have the possibility to address? Great. And if you can't answer that question, don't have a meeting. Put it in an email. And even more so, if you can address it by putting in an email, give people their time back. Right. So part of what I'm arguing for is not more gathering, it's better gathering. And for many of us, that actually means less gathering. <laughs> um, uh -huh. I'm arguing to kind of increase, to, to raise the bar of our, of our gatherings of why we meet. I mean, sometimes I say to clients, what is a uh, meeting? You know, I, I was recently facilitating a gathering of a group of leaders in, a, um, in the social sector, and they were debating whether to, to come again, to whether to do it in six months again or not. Uh -huh. There's a sense of warmth, and, but they're all very busy people. And I said to them, I don't think you should gather unless you could decide to you spend your time in such a way that you design it, that each of you would be willing to cancel other things to show up for this meeting. Yeah, I love that. And they got excited. That's interesting. So, and what, so what does that mean? It means, you know, that the conversation is generative. It means that the people in the room, the, that whatever happens would be different if those specific people weren't there. Um, that there's not, you know, dead weight for, for any reason, either because we're over-included or over-including or it's too big or there are people who don't want to be there. Um, you know, one of the people are present when they're engaged and that they're engaged when the meeting at hand matters to them. The other thing that you talk about in addition, I, you didn't actually use the word enemies of meaningful gatherings, so that's my word, not yours. You talk about this notion of categories. Just because it's a board meeting does not make it meaningful, right? Just because it is a staff meeting does not make it meaningful. And my example up at the top about the person who got who got promoted and now has to go to leadership team meetings that she doesn't understand the meaning of, right? Um, you also talk about routine being the uh, kind of a <clears throat> an obstacle to meaningful gatherings. Talk about that a bit. We tend to conflate category with purpose. And what I mean by that is when, you know, in the, a board meeting, everybody assumes what that is, 
and uh, or or perhaps to say it even more accurately, we assume we know what that looks like, right? A mahogany table or right. at least you know a square or a long boardroom suits a wedding you know to take it out of the work context you know this kind of the archetype of a of a woman in a white dress walking down the aisle even if you don't want to wear a white dress or you're not christian or you're not you know sort of a birthday party cakes and a candle and part of the danger of skipping over purpose is we and using language to describe a meeting is we assume the form of the time we spend together, even before we ask, why are we doing this? And so, for example, there are a lot of needs of a, of a board to effectively function. You know, some of those could be addressed by sitting around a table and, you know, talking about things, but many of them might be benefit from a completely different form of interaction. Mm -hmm. But we, when we don't actually first ask, what's the purpose we then basically start planning the logistics of the room that we always meet in um, and follow and follow into the second part of your question, which is routine. Um, it's, it, it can be hard. You know, you don't really have to think to ask what is the purpose of this, of this meeting or what is the purpose of this offsite? It's actually a lot easier to kind of um, do what you've always done. And so we follow the kind of the rituals of meeting life. Um, even when the ritual, uh, and I use that word anthropologically, um, no longer matches the purpose. So one of the examples that I um, gave in the book and a meeting that I, that I attended as part of my research, you know, in this book, I, I meet and, and interview over a hundred gatherers in kind of extreme context. So, uh, you know, Circus Soleil choreographer, a dominatrix, a um, camp counselors of Jewish summer Arab camps and ask them each, what is, you know, what creates transform transformative experiences in, in your world? And one of the meetings I sat in on was the New York Times page one meeting. So this is a meeting that is, you know, 60 something years old. Right. Um, it was originally created in part to help um, the masthead, the kind of the leadership and the editors decide what should go on the front page of the New York Times. And as the meeting was described to me, it was literally around this like King Arthur style table. Um, uh, an editor said to me, you know, they, they used to come and, and the stories would be called offerings. <laughs> and you sort of see the Olympic gods like duke it out of like, really? what are the seven stories that go on page one? And why did that matter? It mattered because those stories became basically the, the news of the country. And then, you know, particularly, you know, 70 years ago, the news of the world, right? That was yep. where then all the AP stories lead from those. That's the conversation that um, decision makers are hap you know, happening about. So it really, really mattered. And fast forward, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, this little thing called the internet and the website and the homepage show up. And, and over time, uh, it didn't make sense to have a meeting the most important meeting in that company was this page one meeting. It happened at 10 a.m. in the morning when new journalists who came in for part of their orientation, they got to sit in on that meeting. And this was an important meeting. I'd heard about it for years. And Dean Baquet, the, the, the new executive editor, realized that this actually doesn't make sense. This ritual that has so much meaning in the building no longer makes sense. It's, it's late in the day, right? A 10 a.m. Mm -hmm. meeting for a newspaper is, is pretty late. News yeah. has already happened most of the readers have accessed those stories actually through the homepage and, and actually not just by going to the homepage through social media. Correct. So why are they spending all of this time deciding what seven pages, what seven stories should go on this front page? However, the group, there's meaning in the way they have been meeting for over 60 years. Yep. So how do you begin to change the ritual of the meeting 
so that it matches the current need of the newspaper. Right. So interesting. Very, very interesting. So we're having a conversation about meaningful gatherings. Priya Parker is my guest, and she's a facilitator and a strategic advisor, the founder of Thrive Labs, where she helps activists, elected officials, corporate executives, educators, and philanthropists create transformative gatherings. And she is the author of The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters. Um, You need to buy this book. And you need to buy not just a single copy. And I'm not getting a piece of the action here. Uh, I want to. We just met. (laughs) Yeah, totally. It's totally true. Uh, I want you to consider it as a like a staff or a board book club, or buy it for your neighbor who's getting ready to plan a wedding or a bar mitzvah. Uh, So, uh, and you can find it on Amazon. And I Priya has a website which she'll plug at the end, I'm sure. Um, But let's bring this to life with some kind of examples that nonprofit leaders find themselves in. Let's take one and let's walk through and ask me whatever questions you might want to about how you might transform it into a meaningful gathering. So in a typical organization of some size, you've got an ED, he's got six, he or she's got six direct reports, person mm-hmm. in charge of fundraising, IT, finance, HR, communications programs. And there's a typical routine of meeting weekly. And the category is leadership team retreat. Now, we clearly know the categories and routine are problems. So what might we do with that meeting to make it meaningful? Because in most cases, people feel, oh, gosh, I have to go to that leadership team meeting when I could actually be doing work. Mm -hmm. How do we transform that? Well, I mean, the first thing is to, to ask, I mean, everybody, what is the purpose of this meeting? Should we have it? Right. Who's it for? I think it, oftentimes in these situations, the leadership team thinks it's actually for the executive director. Like mm-hmm. it's so that the executive director can know that everything's going okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that might, that, that's what I would call kind of a hygiene factor, right? That, that's fine to have <laughs> as kind of a touch base. Um, but if you want to, you know, retain your staff, if you want to become one of the best places to work, if you want to actually figure out together some of the most gnarly problems you're trying, you know, you're trying to untangle, um, you know, the weekly update is not going to do that. Right. You got to put and, a gnarly, you got to put a gnarly question on the table and actually um, people need to, as you said earlier, they actually need to believe that their voice matters in that discussion, right? Absolutely. I mean, so, so for, so there's, there's both content and kind of process that you can, that you can change. And the first thing I would say is, um, you know, a couple of tips just on the process side. The first is think about how you open and how you close. Um, and the, and what I mean by that is first, don't start with logistics. I, I have a chapter in the book where I joke, never start a funeral with logistics. And it's a real example. I mean, we sort of start by clearing our throat and saying, you know, whether it's like the agenda for today or, um, I mean, if you're a team, weekly team meeting, perhaps you're, you're just starting with the agenda, but like the bathrooms are in the back or there's a car in the parking lot, you know, there's <laughs> lights on. Don't do that. <laughs> and the reason why not to do that is because studies show that at least in an, when someone's giving a talk, the audience's attention rates are the highest in the first 5% and the last 5%, right? right the yeah. opening and then the anticipation of, you know, we can get out of here. And then, and then a climatic moment. And by focusing on logistics, um, you're, you're, you're wasting kind of your most important real estate. 
Wow. And the, and so the first thing is to start with, with purpose, with the purpose. And that could be by asking, um, the team if, uh, but the other is to just say like the purpose at some level, the deepest purpose of our work, um, is X. And, right. um, and then the second is to spend the first 5% part of it's connecting your group, your team to each other. Um, in meaningful, specific ways. So I'll give an example that I love. It's from a facilitator friend of mine. She was facilitating a meeting for a global pharmaceutical company that was looking at um, reviewing a maternal mortality study. Okay. And they had, this isn't a team meeting, but I want to give an example of how you can connect people meaningfully quickly related to the topic. And um, the facilitators came up with what I thought was a brilliant opening question um, to connect the room. And these were people who didn't all know each other and and in this context, very senior leaders. And they said, okay, uh, as an opening question, tell us something about your mother that we couldn't or wouldn't know by looking at her. (laughs) (laughs) oh my god i've just gone some i've just gone to some other stratosphere so what so why but why is that an appropriate question in this context because the content is maternal mortality yep right we're literally talking about mothers we're talking about mothers dying and it's very easy to think about this as a non- personal issue as a non, as a, this, this doesn't, this is for others. This is not about me or for me. But the second thing is it was an incredible way to very quickly and very astutely get, you know, CEOs to reveal something about themselves. And we know that, you know, intentionally that vulnerability creates intimacy. Now it needs to be, you know, used well and used purposefully um, and be a legitimate use of that vulnerability. But to me, that was a brilliant use of a question that gets both heart and head and and pushes forward the agenda, right? It's not just touchy totally. feely, quote unquote, um, to kind of connect people. It's it's actually brilliant. Yeah, that's really brilliant. Um, and so, similarly, how do you start? You know, and it could be a, a weekly, you know, ritual. And what I mean by that is just is a repeated process that has meaning over time um, that cha- that transforms the group from a state to a state. But it could. Be, I, I have a team that I know of um, that someone wrote me after reading the book. They said. Now we start, I start all of my weekly meetings, um, with asking the team in the last week, what's a, what's a, what, what was your rose and what was your thorn of the last week? Love that. Very simple. And, you know, Michelle Obama has talked about doing that at, you know, her dinner with her family. It's not a new concept, but it's a concept that we kind of perhaps have thought about, but don't use. And she said it's transformed their meetings because people can take low risks or high risks. They can tell, uh, they can sometimes we'll take talk about a rose and a rose meaning the best thing that happened and a thorn meaning you know a hard thing that happened over the course of the week. They can talk about personal things or stuff at work. And she said by including a thorn, it's changed the culture of the meeting to basically from the very beginning to prime people to real to say it's okay to talk about thorns in here. Totally. And it takes five minutes as a team of eight. It's quick. And they said that the interstitching of the team, the what they talk about, what they prime each other, you know, to then talk about actually has changed because of the way they open. Well, I also think, too, when you tell that rose, the rose piece of it, um, it brings the work into the room. And I feel like sometimes uh, nonprofit leaders forget that the work has to come into the room with you and that people need to be ignited. They need to be inspired to continue to slog through what can be really hard days if you're trying to solve really big problems. 
Completely. And I mean, partly, you know, one of the reasons I believe burnout can be so high in this field is because we tend to skip what we think of as like the trivialities or the niceties. And, you know, when people say to me, a leader say to me, you know, we're literally talking about life and death issues here. How, you know, what is, why are we shouldn't spend that much time like connecting with each other. We need to look out in the world. And I think, and I say to them, I mean, connect meaningfully related to the work, right? That's why I love that maternal mortality example, but you can't build a movement if you don't know who's in it. <laughs> and you or, don't, or you know, resilience, people- like interstitching the desire to like stay because it's hard, but I want to be with these people you know, but, but also it changes the nature of the conversation. So another um, study that Atul Gawande talks about, so a WHO study from years ago that looked at when surgical teams went through a checklist at the beginning of surgery, but part of the checklist included everybody in that surgical team, including the intern, the anesthesiologist, the assistant, the lab technician, whoever's on the team introduced themselves and says their name before surgery. Error rates go down. So Why? Because in a part of the reason is because in a surgical teams, first of all, tend to be like SWAT teams. They they aren't the same team over and over again. And often, you know, your your face is literally protected by a mask. You can't necessarily see who's here. And they're deeply hierarchical. So a surgeon goes and then makes an incision. And if there's a mistake, usually he or she's not the person to see it. It's often the most junior person on the team because they're not doing other stuff. Right. However, what is the likelihood that they're going to speak up in such a hierarchy? Well, the likelihood that they'll speak up again, once they've already spoken up first is much higher. If they've spoken up, they've been seen, but they've also just used their voice already. So they, the first 5% of how you create your meaning and how you spend your time together sets the pathways and the norms for the operating system for the next 90 minutes or 60 minutes or 15 minutes. So don't abdicate your opening because however you show up and the structures that you allow and the norms that you prime for are going to take the life of their own once you set them. Very, very interesting. So I, um, I want to shift a little bit. And I, I, I joked earlier that, that the notion excellent board meeting seems like an oxymoron to a lot of nonprofit leaders. But I wanted to offer a sort of a challenge that I often see with regard to board meetings, uh, that the purpose is different for some than for others. So the ED, the executive director, wants the meeting to be show and tell, to affirm the great job that she's doing, to keep the board out of the weeds, and to go raise money. <laughs> right. right. The board doesn't want to just know stuff, right? They got reports, and, and, and if you're lucky, they read them. Um, but board members have expertise and passion. They have voices and valuable ones. They want to leave feeling valued that their participation mattered. So I see this all the time, this tension at board meetings where board members will leave frustrated that they haven't been able, that that the purpose of the meeting has not suited them. And I wondered if you could speak to what happens when the purpose isn't the same for all the participants. (laughs) So here's the dirty little secret. We don't usually share the same purpose. Oh, and in general. gatherings are proxy wars to realize that. <sighs> and the reason why I think gatherings are such a valuable like lens of analysis and intervention and leadership is because, again, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end that surfaces all of these inherent conflicts that are otherwise sometimes hard to name or see or shape. And so if you can actually you know, 
you know, proxy war is about agenda. Proxy war is about who should be there. Proxy war is about, uh, you know, I mean, some, where it should be. Sometimes they're, they're turf battles, but, but often there are fundamental disagreements about like, what is each of our roles in this thing? Yep. And, and as a conflict resolution facilitator, the reason why I think gatherings are such a powerful format is because when you're conscious about this stuff, there are opportunities to make the implicit explicit. Uh-huh. And when the implicit is not serving your purpose, you can help elevate it to the explicit and then you can end it because the meeting ends and, and, you know, the work goes on, but you know, one of the, I read a lot of, of, from different fields to, um, you know, to inform this work for the art of gathering. I, I read, I, I spent a lot of time reading game design theory, um, and different anthropological books. And one of the most interesting books I read was, uh, by Mary Douglas. And it was called, uh, I think the title's purity and danger. And she's an anthropologist that from, I think, the 50s, who spent a lot of time looking at um, the role of shamans in, in, in tribal societies. And uh-huh. she, she basically had this, this thesis that in any type of, in any culture, in a team, in a country, in a village, there are elements that are harder to face whether they're taboo, whether they're dangerous elements, whether it's conflict. And traditionally the role of the shaman was many things, but one of them was to create a, 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 my language is a temporary alternative world, but basically a a different space with a beginning, middle and end where the group could begin to look at that stuff um, where they weren't playing the same role as, you know, whether it's mother, father and sister, you could kind of step out of, of the everyday and go into this alternative space. And the shaman kind of held that, held that, you know, hosted it and then closed it. And then they, they faced it together collectively and then they ended it and then they then moved out. And it's not that you're not in, in relationship afterwards, but gatherings are an opportunity to create temporary alternative worlds where you can create the specific rules for a specific moment of time. And if you do it in a legitimate way, people will follow you. I'll give an example that I love. Paul Laducina was a um, chair, was a chair of uh, A.T. Kearney years ago, board chair. And he realized that his board member, basic board members, this is during a big transition in the company, were coming together in the boardroom and basically uh, blocking (laughs) progress, blocking and, 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 trying to avoid making decisions. Okay. And he realized, so again, if gatherings are proxy wars for like misaligned purposes, how does this happen? It happens through conversation, right? And what he realized was happening in the board meetings was every time they would start to get too close to a decision, all of the board members or some of the board members would basically ask questions that were, that would ask for more information. They were stalling. Yep. So what did he do? He decided for the next board meeting, he created one rule. He created a pop-up rule, my language, not his. And he, he told the board, the board members ahead of time, I am banning questions at the next board meeting that are asking for more information. <laughs> you can only ask questions that are substantive, that are generative. I'm going to host, I'm going to send all of the materials two weeks ahead of time. If you have any clarifying questions, we're going to have a conference call ahead of time and I will answer all of your clarifying questions. Oh. And this, and and he did it and they, they got to a decision 
at that board meeting. He, he called it out. He had the legitimacy and the authority to do it as board chair. Um, but he understood that there was a specific set of norms and conversational cues that were preventing progress. So he made the implicit explicit. He created a temporary rule. He met their need for clarifying and legitimize it for clarifying information. He just hosted a separate gathering to deal with that. And then he, and then he changed the nature of that meeting temporarily. I and love that. And, and you have the opportunity to do that because in gatherings there, when you have a specific focus, you can shape what it is, you know, this group is going to actually talk about. And, uh, you know, I talk a bit in the, in the book much more about creating these temporary rules. I think that we deeply underuse them, particularly in our, in our teams and our leadership. And, and they don't have to be the same role for every single gathering, but we, right. We accept the default norms and routines of what happens when people kind of come together and don't think about it. And to use your language, meetings are work. Yeah, I I I, I think that that um, I know how many people who are listening have been in board meetings where um, it's not that it's not actually that the board member feels like is in the business of stalling making a decision. It's sometimes it's just their only way in is to ask a question for more information, right? That's how their voice is actually potentially going to be heard. And it is so frustrating to, and it feels like a total stall to the executive director. So the strategy you've described could be enormously valuable in bringing some big issue in front of your not in front in front of your board in a way where you actually get to a generative discussion that leads you someplace other than with a list of questions to answer and then it's not three months until you get back to the table where you might actually get that generative conversation completely and and part of you know i i was saying this earlier what is what is a gathering where, what is a meeting where coming together in purpose is like, is, is worth it? Is it's worthy. And I think that is when the conversation is generative, which means like it's building on each other in a way that is very difficult to happen through any other medium. Yep. You're making decisions collectively. I mean, you're debating, you're, you're thinking, you're listening, you're, you're, you're doing something, you're doing the art of collective dialogue that you, that is, that, that you can't do over the phone. Like, and, and know that this is precious real estate. If you actually have people together, uh, you know, another example of making the, um, implicit explicit. One of, one of the things is in board meetings and in different teams, there are sometimes there are different purposes and different roles people play that, that are, you know, that are, um, that are distinct, but because we, again, we inherit a specific format where we all kind of sit together in a square or in a table and just kind of leave it to whoever speaks up, they, you can't actually see what these different roles are. So another example, I was working with a, with a client a few years ago and, um, the client basically wanted to build kind of a new city. And, um, they brought together people to, from all over the world who were kind of experts on thinking about, you know, kind of creating, designing transformative cities, experiences, Bollywood film directors and, um, you know, Jane Jacob advocates and, you know, uh, uh, acolytes. And, um, and at the very last minute, the client wanted to actually add 20 people to the meeting. 
and it was it was twelve originally for the the kind of the experts to think through what would the you know future vision of this place be. Yep. But I but I sat and I thought and I I argue you know, a lot about not over-including, but I, I asked, well, what is the purpose of these 20 people? And they were from the client side and realized basically that if you're going to have this really bold visioning session, but you don't actually include the decision makers who have a lot of fear about being bold at from the very beginning, um, you're working, you know, it, it actually could be very helpful to have these people in the room. However, right. adding 20 people to a circle is you know, in part when they're not the experts, they're there really to listen and to observe is a very different meeting. Yep. And so we invited them to come, but we said, you can only come if you play a very active role. And that role is active listener and observer. Yep. And we actually created a circle around the room where if they were to come, they had to agree to be off their phones and pay attention and actually not speak which was, which was counter, but that actually in a weird way was empowering because it named the hierarchy and it gave each circle a purpose. Yeah. And they, and, and the people who said they couldn't be there all day, we said, okay, then that, that this doesn't work for that meeting. But part of, part of your ability to start thinking like, what is the role of these different people in the room and how can I create a structure that serves that role? Um, so smart. Um, uh, it's so smart. And I, I also can hear the voices of listeners saying what you're describing requires planning and intention that I don't have. And if you don't have it, I am assuming you're suggesting, uh, don't have the meeting until you have that time or make that time. Right. Well, I, 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 I it depends on the stakes of the meeting. Yeah. So I'd say if the stakes are high, don't have it, you know, it's going to create yeah. more problems for you. I mean, you know, deeply think about the purpose, deeply think about the, 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 the design of it, deeply think about the power dynamics. But if it's, you know, but you're also gathering all of the time and some of the stuff you get, once you practice it, you get faster and faster. Yeah. Right now we, we are gathering all the time and you're spending, you don't have time because you're spending time on the wrong things. So Correct. take some of that time back and, uh, and spend, you know, five minutes. If you don't have time at the beginning of the meeting to say, Hey, what's the purpose of, of this meeting today? And, and to elevate it, what's the specific disputable purpose? And what I mean by that is the more specific and the, and the more kind of disputable people can disagree with the purpose, the more clear it is of who should be there and that, there, that there's actually a there there. Um, I'm, I'm struck, I'm struck back. I have have two more questions before we close. Actually, one is a statement. I I took some of your, um, lessons to heart and I'm a big fan of opens and closes because I've done a lot of, um, galas, right? Mm. Fundraising galas and the programs, Mm -hmm. uh, they start with a long list of thank yous. Um, and you know, my advice to CEO clients is you've got to give the thank yous to somebody else so that the minute the CEO walks on stage, they can, they can, can get you at hello and that, that and that the um and that the close of an event uh is usually about the dessert bar or how they can get their after dinner drinks yes. and is not it doesn't lift people up in any specific Air way traffic control yeah exactly so i um i don't uh, I, and i think inspired by your book i i now have bi-weekly team meetings what i start with we take turns <laughs> And we have a theme song. We pick a theme song for the for the meeting. And part of the meeting is to oh remind gosh. ourselves to remind ourselves of the joy that mm. um, being of service to nonprofit leaders engenders in us. And um, and so, so what do you mean a theme song? Like you each have one, or there's a theme song for your team? No, it happens every week. Somebody picks a a, a meeting theme song. So uh, so <laughs> I'm amazing. I'm I'm known to be first of all crazy about music 
musical theater and also a uh, very uh, glass is half full kind of gal. So I picked from, I think it's from Annie Get Your Gun or something. I got the sun in the morning and the moon at night. And then <laughs> two weeks later, uh, we brought on somebody full time and um, he we gave him the theme song and he picked Dolly Parton's Working 9 to 5. <laughs> and um, and it like, just, <laughs> and it just it, first of all, it makes people get to the meeting on time. And wow. it opens with a sense of lightheartedness. And, and it tells you something about the person based on what, what song they picked. And then the other thing that I, I jokingly talk about all the time is for people of a certain age, there was a show on in the probably the 80s called Hill Street Blues. And they had this morning meeting with all the cops. And uh, it was run by the same guy every week. And uh, he ends his meeting by just simply saying, okay, everybody, let's be careful out there. Right. And it was just like this simple close that reminded everybody in the room of what they were in the business of doing and reminded everyone that the sergeant cared about them and their well-being. And it's, it's so beautiful. Right. Isn't and that I was awesome? careful. Right. There's also so many meanings of that word, like full of care. Right. Yeah. So I, I, um, so I think they're on, on so many levels. So I just wanted to say thank you because the, the book has actually made me think about my team gathering in a very different way. And, um, and I think has been, and we just, we decided to start a book club actually. Oh, um, I love that. Because we, we realized that I share books with my clients all the time. And mm. so we're, um, we're currently reading a book called Difficult Conversations by Sheila Keen mm-hmm. and Douglas Stone, because, it's about giving and receiving feedback and, you know, all of those sorts of things. So there's lots of ways to make the gatherings meaningful and enriching. And it's actually very much, I, li- I like to think very, what I'm doing is very on brand because we're in the business of enriching nonprofit leaders. We're in the business of joy, of recognizing the joy of service and those things that you can build into a meeting actually reinforce for my team what the work is really all about. Completely. It's embodied. Yeah. So um, we are totally out of time. Um, (laughs) But what that means is that um, we have uh, teed up for you a big fat appetizer for going out and purchasing uh, Priya Parker's book uh, called The Art of Gathering how we meet and why it matters. Uh, she actually, I told her the other day that the only thing that annoyed me about her book was that I didn't, I didn't write it. (laughs) Um, um, so I, I, I hope you will take advantage of it. Um, and really think even if you do nothing other than having listened to this podcast, that you really evaluate how you meet, um, making sure that you're really digging into sort of the purpose of the meeting and designing it accordingly. So um, with that said, I just want to say, Priya, thank you so much for um, for these lessons, which I think are um, really quite simple when you get to it, but um, th- but they get lost on so many. So I'm hoping, I really hope that, that your book and your work extends out and um, uh, really helps, helps the world be much more productive and intentional about how they get gather. Thank you. And thank you for seeing this work so specifically and, um, and seeing what I'm trying to do here. I I'm so grateful. And I, you know, I, I have one lingering thing to say, which is people always ask, it's not to not do thank yous and not do logistics, do them second to last and then yeah. end on purpose. Yeah, um, totally. And, you know, and I would just say to, to those listening, 
you know, gatherings are, and meetings are the moments in which we have the potential to shape each other and shape the future. And it should not be seen as anything less than that. Uh, I think that feels like a good close, Priya. <laughs> so I was gonna I was gonna end with some logistics and some housekeeping, but I, I think I'm gonna make this a meaningful gathering and just say, find me at joangary.com that with two R's um, for more resources like this one, uh, and also um, uh, learn more about uh, the nonprofit leadership lab, which is my uh, monthly uh, subscription membership site that provides content and community for board and staff leaders of small but mighty nonprofits for whom consultants and coaches are generally out of reach, uh, cost wise. Um, and, um, and until then, uh, here's to meaningful gatherings and, uh, thank you so much as always, uh, for the world work that you do to change the world and, and make it a better place in ways that are large and small. Thanks very much. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at JoanGary.com, reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits, at NonprofitLeadershipLab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.